Now, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Again, we'll study the whole of the chapter, chapter 4. This follows immediately the call of Samuel and, of course, of the prophecy that God laid upon him as his first ministerial act to then go tell to Eli once again that the Lord would curse his house, that both of his sons would die on the same day and in a violent manner, and that his household would come ultimately to an end. And so when we come to chapter 4, we aren't told about its timing. There is some chronological work you can do, but nonetheless the scripture is in general silent to the specific date of the occasion. We do know that this is, however, on the occasion of two battles that were held uh, at a place called Ebenezer. It's relatively unclear if it's called Ebenezer in this day. Ebenezer is a Hebrew word composed of two words, Evan and Etzer, which are the words stone and remembrance, basically a memorial. And that's something that was erected at this site after the battle. So nonetheless, that's where they are. And this is according to two battles had between the people of Israel and the people of the Philistines where no context is given regarding why they fought on this specific occasion other than they did fight and it was not a good day for the Israelites. So let's read chapter 4, 1 Samuel, and we'll study it together. And the word of the Lord, or the word of Samuel, came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line against Israel, and when the battle was spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they had learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought 
and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news of the ark, that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would form us into the people of your design. O Lord, fashion our hearts that we would love the things that you love. O Lord, give us the grace of conviction that we might examine ourselves that we might be brought into obedience with what pleases you, into obedience with your law, into obedience with the gospel call of faith. O Lord, that we might present ourselves to Christ out of necessity and need. O Lord, desiring to have him as our Savior. Our Father in heaven, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Convenient religion or superficial religion. This is the description of the sort of religion that is empty of heart and of mind given over to the Lord. It is a religion that has the things of God, the appearance of devotion with the attempt to gain from it what one would simply desire. This may be political, this may be therapeutic, it may be social, it may be any number of things. But nonetheless, convenient 
or superficial religion, it's skin deep. It has as its ultimate goal the placation or the satisfaction of our own desires. And here as we come to this chapter, we find scripture that speaks of this situation of convenient religion or superficial religion that we've seen in the midst of the people of God conducted at Shiloh and with its chief perpetrators being the leader of God's people, both in the man Phineas and Hophni, the sons of Eli, who were priests of the Lord. You remember, they did not honor God. They took from his sacrifices what they wanted. They made it a religion about themselves. And so our passage speaks of that, but it also speaks of God's response to superficial, convenient, empty religion. The three points I want us to consider are really the three portions of the narrative. The first, the defeat, verses 1 through 11, the defeat. The second, the news, verses 12 through 19, the effect of it whenever it came amongst the people of God, verses 12 through 19, and then the Ichabod. I don't mean the boy, but I mean the pronouncement of the wife of Phineas upon her death, verses 19 through 22. Verses 19 through 22. So in verse 1, we're told simply that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. This seems to be at least a verse or portion of the verse that probably belongs to chapter 3, Uh, verse 21. You have to remember that the Bible was versified and divided not only in verse but in chapter after its writing. But nonetheless, even if it isn't, it has a transition effect. That the word of Samuel came to Israel and then we turn back where? To the people and subsequently to the narrative regarding Hophni and Phinehas whom specifically Samuel has just prophesied. And so contextually, it should make sense to us that this first word of prophecy, the harsh prophecy, the one he did not want to tell his mentor, Eli, regarding his sons and his household, of their cursing and their destruction, that this is probably at least a portion of the word of Samuel that has come to all of Israel. Remember that this is said uh, regarding how it will be received, that the two ears of everyone, verse 11, Who hears it will tingle. Verse 11 of chapter 3. And so it makes good sense for us to relate it still uh, to the context because it means that the people of Israel knew that there was a prophecy about the faithlessness of the priesthood that God propounded through a new prophet to their people, and it was one of defeat and destruction. And so immediately in verse. One, we get into this story. And we read that Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, one of their favorite hobbies in the Old Testament, to fight the Philistines. And we're told they encamped at Ebenezer. Again, the name regarding uh, what is essentially and most likely the stacking of many stones. Have you ever been to a a Hebrew or Israelite um, cemetery or a memorial? Something that you'll sometimes see is 
the stacking of stones, or maybe just a stone is left. And this is an old tradition of the people of God. It dates all the way back into this era, and it is a remembrance either of a tragedy, which we're going to read about, or of the faithfulness of the Lord, which I think, in general terms, you could say simply both of them are present in this passage. We're told that the Philistines encamped at Aphek, that's some 22 miles or 35 kilometers away from the Israelites there at Ebenezer. And that the Philistines drew up a line against Israel. They went out and the battle spread. And in quick succession, we're just simply told, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, killing at about a relative number of 4,000 men on the battlefield. That's a terrible loss. 4,000 men lost in a battlefield with bladed weapons. That's a bloody day. A horrible sight. Pitched battle with lines, bearing swords. It's a horrific thing. And so whenever we continue to read and we read about the troops coming back to the camp and interacting with the elders of Israel, there's no wonder. You know, they're reading maybe uh, the, the blood that's covering the survivors of those that have been slain. Who knows? But nonetheless, certainly the state of the men. It's been a hand-to-hand battle. And the elders look at them and simply say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Did you catch that? Who defeated Israel? Well, I mean, in basic, simple, obvious, common sense sort of terms, when you look at the battlefield, who are the aggressors that won the day? Well, of course it's the Philistines. I mean, after all, these are the people who have giants among them, right? A mighty people with mighty soldiers. But that's not what the elders of Israel say, no. They perceive something of the ultimate truth of the unveiling of the history of God's people. The Lord is in it. The Lord is sovereign over happy, kind, light providences and heavy, devastating, horrible providences. Who has defeated the people of Israel but the Lord? The Lord's hand has been in it. We have to ask the question. Of course, the word of Samuel went out into the midst of all of Israel. Is it in their mind and in their heart, the prophecy? Are they expecting a thing? They don't quote it. They know that the Lord is in it. That the Lord is in it. I think this has to confront us. In fact, this is basically what I intended uh, to focus primarily on with the whole of the sermon this evening, not going into the latter portions. But this ought to confront us tremendously because we live in a world that has its own idealized view of God. I mean, people hate any kind of firestone or brimstone and fire type preaching. They don't like anything negative from the pulpit. They don't like anything that's hard. They don't like anything that would make the Lord anything less than entirely benevolent, only kind, only full of mercy, soft, gentle, They don't want a God that has justice. They don't want a God that understands law. They don't want a God that meets out punishment or curses. People don't want that. They don't want a God that's dangerous. A God that pours out 
absolute justice in the way he orders all of his creatures and all of their actions from the greatest to the least. They don't want that. A sovereign God, a powerful God. And I have to simply say at times in our own hearts, even as good, orthodox, reformed, and Presbyterian sort of people, do we struggle with it? The sovereignty of God. Do we want to look in the face the justice of God? I think it's a difficult thing. Our prayers ask God for things, but rarely, or maybe should I even simply ask it, how often do our prayers focus on the justice of God and turn from sin and unto repentance? You see, this passage is all about what happens when you don't repent when the word of God comes to you. I mean, how many times did the prophecy come? I mean, it was already a thing known in all of Israel, the offenses and abuses that Hophni and Phinehas were conducting against or did to the people of Israel at Shiloh when they would come to worship. That didn't turn them. So God sent an unnamed prophet. What did he say? God's going to kill these two men and he's going to extinguish your household. That didn't stop them. This wasn't a quiet or a private prophecy. It didn't turn them in repentance. It didn't change their hearts. They heard the warning and they ignored it. They understood God to be a God of tolerance and a God who is soft and a God who is kind but not a God who is just. And so they didn't fear God. Nothing changed. And another prophecy came with the boy Samuel. It came to Eli and Undoubtedly to Hophni and Phinehas and to the rest of the people of Israel and nothing changed. Superficial religion, convenient religion, a religion that's skin deep. It has all of the, the appearance and the icons and the paintings and the loud songs and the multitudes of people. All the doings of religion but none of the heart, none of the mind given to God. The Lord defeated us. He extended his hand in punishment toward the people of God. And in the first battle took 4,000 men. A warning. This is nothing but a light skirmish compared to what's about to come. In the second battle of Ebenezer. Because what do we read? What's the response? It's not only... Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? And so we should get on our knees in repentance. Rather, it's this. Let us bring out the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and bring it here from Shiloh. That it, or maybe translated he, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, on the surface of it, this sounds permissible. And if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know a little bit about the ark. This is a box, gilded in gold. It's got on its lid two angels that have outstretched wings toward one another. And the lid of the box is called the mercy seat. This is where sacrificial blood is splashed or sprinkled by the priest yearly. But you may know that this is more than just a temple object or a synagogue object. That this is often carried into battle. We know that it was taken around Jericho 
by the direction of God before the people, leading them around and around. And it was obedience in that time to do what they did with the ark. Maybe you also know of a story about the ark and something, well, kind of terrifying that happened with it, committing to us all that it's quite dangerous. There was a man named Uzzah. You know about Uzzah? Well, 2 Samuel, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it tells us the occasion that poor Uzzah, a priest who was taking the ark, transporting it, tried to steady the ark with a bare hand. What happened? God struck him dead. I mean, this hasn't happened yet in the history of Israel. But nonetheless, the people understand it, something along the lines, as their greatest weapon. It's dangerous. And whenever the people think of the Lord and they think of their relationship to him and they think about what just happened in this battle, they have the wrong response to the warning of the providence of God. Instead, they take God and they consider an object of his gift, an object that he has made to show forth his relationship to them and his promise of forgiveness. And they take it and they make it into a trinket of dangerous religion. Let's bring it to the battlefield. Let's see what happens. This is powerful. It's an image of the presence of the Lord, a box containing the jar of manna, the budded staff, and the stone tablets of the law. It's hard to say exactly what they thought would happen other than that the Lord would save them from the power of their enemies, the Philistines, through its presence. I don't usually quote or reference movies, but if you've ever seen the first Indiana Jones movie, it's It's about the ark and you have all these crazy things like ghosts coming out of it and lightning getting shot from it and it levitates and all kinds of wild stuff. I don't think that they thought anything like that. But they did believe that it would be an instrument for the deliverance or the victory of the people of God. And you can say that from the text it did have an immediate effect, right? So we read that... They brought it from Shiloh and uh, brought it with the sons of Eli, both Hophni and Phinehas, who were with the Ark of the Covenant. And that in verse 5, as soon as the Ark came into the camp, that all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. There was an, an inestimable morale boost to the troops of the people of Israel. They saw this and they simply were heartened. God is with us. God wills it. He's here in the midst of us and surely will win. That's what they think. And they shout so loudly that all the Philistines hear, right? And they begin to question and they begin to receive the news that, hey, the Ark of the Covenant of that God, the God of Israel is with them. And this is a dangerous God. This is a God that took out the greatest army on the planet, the Egyptians, by plagues and by drowning them in a sea. What are we going to do? We've never faced anything like this. That's basically what they say. What are we going to do? As if they were thinking they've got nuclear weapons. This escalated quickly. 
That's what's on their mind. That's what's on their heart. But do you see the heart? Do you see the misguided concern? Makes you think of the crusading knights. Deus vult. God wills it. This makes you think of how in the midst of the battle of Jerusalem, they brought out the, the what? Do you know the history there? What did he bring? He brought the true cross out against the Islamic forces. What happened? They lost the battle. They lost the true cross, whatever the slivers of wood actually were in themselves. Makes me think also of something that was stamped into the belts of soldiers of the Third Reich. Gott mit uns. God is with us. A battle charge of the Nazi forces. And it's simple enough to say that the Israelites understood or thought of or in general had a sense that they could use God to their own ends like a talisman or a trinket to get what they wanted and what they wanted was a victory over the Philistines. And I think that as Christians, our hearts, our minds, that we can treat God in much the same way. We don't have a golden box filled with the elements of the covenant. We don't have slivers of any true cross. Most of us probably don't wear talismans upon our bodies. But nonetheless, can we think of God and conceive of him in our hearts and in the way we act and in the way we speak so that God is used to our own ends, whether it's coming to services, whether it's engagement in political or community affairs, to be seen and to have what we want, And so can we ourselves not be a people guilty of a skin-deep religion that doesn't affect the heart, that treats God as little more than a means to our own ends. We have to check our hearts because the story of the second battle is even more horrific. They didn't hear, they didn't heed the warning and, and the death that was already had. The Philistines won again a second time. 30,000 soldiers slaughtered. That's bigger than my hometown by 15-fold. A really small town, as you can tell. 30,000. Some 4,000 already on top of that. This is a decimated army. And why? Because the Lord came against them. The Lord defeated them because they ignored his word and they evidenced hearts that weren't burning for him, but rather a desire to get what they would like from him on their terms, according to their will. And so the news, as we continue to read through the passage of Scripture, verse 12 and through 19, We have a man from Benjamin who runs from the battle on the same day and he comes to Shiloh and we're told that he has a unique appearance. His clothes are torn and he has dirt on his head. And this is, I think there are two possible interpretations and I lean heavily on one. The possible is that he's just beat up from the battle, right? His clothes are shredded. 
He's got dirt on his head. It's been a rough one. But these are also the evidences of a mourner. The torn clothes and then the soil upon the head. A mourner. And I think that's what's going on. That when he runs into the city, before he can even get a word out of his mouth, when people look at him, they know that there's bad news at hand. And so what does he begin to tell the people? Well, he comes and conveys to the city what's going on. That the people of God have lost the battle, that the ark of God has been taken, that the sons of Eli have themselves been killed. It's a horrible day. And there's Eli, the old man, 98 years old, the text tells us. 98 years old, just sitting there. What's he doing? He's by the gate on his seat because it seems like that's where he likes to sit. Like if you were to go to ancient Shiloh and he's not passed on, you know where it is. Where he's going to be, he's got an address. He's sitting at the corner by the gate. And we're told that because he's old, his eyes have gone out, that he's become blind. You can just almost imagine him. He's sitting there waiting. He may be blind, but his ears work. And he can hear the swell of the people. The moaning, the groaning, the howling of the the story of sons and husbands dead on the battlefield. And the story of, of the taking of the ark by these Philistines. That this image of the presence of God in the midst of the people of God. This wonderfully important symbol of intimacy with God. It's been taken. And so the people howl. It's a chorus that just raises from them, from the depth of their persons. And we're told a thing about Eli. That as he was sitting by the road watching, verse 13, that his heart trembled for the ark of God. Why is that included? Again, I think it's one of those peaks into the heart of the man. He, though not a perfect man, though a man who loved his sons in a greater measure than he loved the glory of God, as God testified against him, still had a heart for God. He still was the mentor of a faithful minister in Samuel, and if Samuel is anything, it is because of his training in ministry and the mercy of God. It's as if the man is sitting and he's thinking, but he's not thinking on Hophni and Phinehas. What's he thinking about? The foolishness of taking the ark and using it as simply a symbol or a trinket. He's a priest after all. This is spiritual. It's the sign of the covenant of God. A sign of the salvation of God's people. The distinction of God's people out from amongst the nations of the world. It's not to be taken around lightly or at the discretion of random men snatched from the temple. And so his mind is on it. His heart trembles for the ark of the Lord. This is before he even knows that it's gone, that it's been taken. He's concerned. He doesn't like it being gone. And so he's concerned. And we're told that whenever the news comes to him, the blind man sitting there trembling over the ark... When it reaches his ears, read it again uh, with me. 
verse 15. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, and he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat, hit his head, and died from a broken neck. That's particular information. It is because in some sense he understands that this is the Lord keeping his word This is divine judgment. He's so taken by the shock, he falls over because it is the direct result of the faithlessness of his house, his sons, and his lack of witness against them. It's not only that they die, but that the presence of God has been taken away from them. This news is the direct result of an unfaithful ministry that has not a vital relationship with the God of heaven. And it should never surprise anyone whenever an unfaithful ministry that doesn't know the Lord experiences a season where the Spirit of God is retracted. But it strikes him so much that he falls over, breaking his neck and unto his death. And you go on and we read another account. It's not just Eli, but we're told about the daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. She was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news that the Ark of God, verse 19, was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed, I think I'm pronouncing this right, or bowed or however, and gave birth, for her pains came upon her, and about the time of her death, women were attending her. She's overwhelmed. She's overwhelmed by what's happened. Yes, by the death, but more so by the capturing of the ark. She perceives in it the judgment of God. Again, the prophetic word of Samuel had come amongst all the people of God. The telling of faithlessness and the judgment of God against people ought to affect us. It ought to cause us to turn ahead of time whenever the warnings of God come, cause us to turn away from whatever we are doing and back to the Lord in repentance. And if we hear the telling of horrible things that have happened, the closing of churches, the scandals of unfaithful ministers found out, all these sorts of things, it ought not be a snide remark of, well, I saw it coming, but rather Shock, horror, and pain. These aren't light things. And the passage records extreme reactions to these spiritual things, this judgment being brought about upon the people of God. 
in verses 21 and 22, we have the account of the Ichabod. It's this pronouncement of a curse in a way, in the name of a child. And as you read this passage, it's, it's sometimes I think, well, about the time of her death, as the woman's given birth to the child and the, the nurses are holding the infant, she's not paying attention to the kid. She's not concerned at it, about the child at all or even that she's given birth, but rather she's just too overwhelmed with the reality of the glory of God that's gone so far from the people of Israel. Does she name the child Ichabod by intention or simply by the circumstance of bemoaning the loss of the ark? I'm satisfied to say yes in both ways. She says Ichabod, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she says again, The glory has departed from Israel, verse 22, for the ark of God has been captured. That's what touches her heart. She is overwhelmed by it. Don't ever name your children Ichabod. Yahavod. Yahweh God, Kavod, has forsaken us. That's the depiction. And it presses on our heart and her mind that they are a people with whom the Lord has turned his back on. Where do we see this in other portions of Scripture? The theme of Yaakovod, the abandonment of God. Well, we see it whenever the Spirit of the Lord no longer resides within the temple of Jerusalem, but departs into Babylon, going ahead of the people of God and away from an unfaithful ministry and into captivity. We see it there. I think there is, if you squint your eyes a little bit, there is some sense in which the The phrase, God gave them over, the abandonment of God, has the same weight of Ichabod. But I think also you see this in the book of Revelations with Revelation with the telling of the moving of the lampstands that shine the light of the Word of God, this depiction of faithful preaching, faithful ministry, or the faithful outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, shining light into the dark hearts of God's people and converting them, that those lampstands are removed because of the grumbling and the faithful faithlessness of the people of God. I think you still see the Ichabod today, and you see it in places like Germany. <laughs> The world has seen scarcely any revival like what happened at the Reformation. No matter what you think of Reformed doctrine, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this nation and on this continent and around the world. Yet today, if you go to Wittenberg, what will you hear? Will you hear the Bible read and preached and God honored? No, no, of course 
not. Not without excuse after excuse after excuse and explanation after explanation and explanation. Just a week ago, the news came that St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva held its first Mass since the departure of the Mass under the ministry of John Calvin in the early 1500s. What are you going to hear there today? Are there going to be preachers chained to the Word of God like slaves and bondservants of Jesus holding the Word up and reading it and giving the sense? Or is there silence? Equivocation? Empty pews? You'd see this in the great pulpits and the churches if New England that knew the, the great awakening and the effusion of the Holy Spirit that was poured out even in the United States. Most of you won't know this name, but the pulpit of Tinkling Springs Presbyterian Church. It's quite the funny name. Once the pulpit of Robert Louis Dabney, now a great bastion of liberalism where more is to be said about LGBTQ rights than are to be said about the reading and teaching of the scriptures. It's the result of a people that turn their hearts away from God and so what happens, the presence of the Lord is taken away. It's a dire warning. And it's ones and all, one that all of us need to hear that God isn't housed in buildings but rather in the hearts of his children devoted to him by faith. May the Lord help us to be a people who would love him and who would turn in repentance, who would rejoice in forgiveness, who would cling to him for salvation and security and help and comfort. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all your mercies. O oh Lord, that you are not quick-tempered. O oh Lord, that your word, 66 books again and again and again and again, speaks clearly volumes and volumes to your holiness. Oh Lord, where you call us away from ourselves and away from worldly delights and you call us to enjoy the things of heaven, be reconciled with you to no longer be your enemies, but to be your children, to sit with you and to hear your voice and to know what it is to be in the family of the household of faith, to have union with Christ. Oh Lord, all the benefits that are in him, the one in whom we are seated in the heavenly places, through whom you display the riches of your kindness to us. Oh, Father in heaven, help us to be a people that would offer to you our hearts sincerely and promptly. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.